Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you for the beautiful weather outside, for the the beautiful weather we've had this week. We thank you for uh, a chance to come together and be with each other, fellowship together, to pray together, to sing together, and to learn from your word together. God, give us wisdom to understand what you want us to know about who you are and how we can relate to you and display your character to the world. We love you so much, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a reading from Exodus chapter 24, verses 16 through 18. The glory of Yahweh settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of Yahweh's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain, and he remained on the mountain for 40 days. This is immediately following the covenant that had been given through Moses to Israel. We spent a number of weeks previously taking a look at what God had said to Israel to begin to make a covenant with them. Remember, it started out when they came with the God coming down in the fire and the lightning and the thunder, the whirlwind and the smoke and the mount and the earthquake. And God spoke to Israel and He gave them the Ten Commandments until they could bear it no longer. And they said, please Moses, you talk to God, you tell us what God has to say. We can't handle the presence of God. We cannot handle hearing His voice. And so God did and God gave the rest of His covenants, his demands of what Israel must do, and his promises of what he would do in return if Israel was faithful to their part. And Israel, when they heard, they said, oh, yeah, that's great. Moses, tell God that we will do everything he has commanded us. And so Moses said, fantastic, uh, let's, let's have the ceremony. They made an altar, they sacrificed some bulls, they took half of the blood and splashed it against the altar. And this half the blood covenant was to say that God would do everything He promised, and if He didn't, they had permission, literally, people had permission to kill God. And then on the other side, they took the rest of the blood and flung it on the people to say, Israel... So you know, yes, you are promising to do these things, and yes, God will bless you if you do these things, but if you don't, then you will be under the judgment of death. And that's what they took on. They took on the covenant. And so God then calls Moses up to the mountain and says, now that you guys have agreed to this, I have more details to give you. So Moses has spent 40 days on the mountain, we are going to have a 40-part series covering each of the details of the tabernacle and the priests. Just like I said last week. No, it's actually going to be a two-part series, so don't worry. We have a lot we're going to be working through, but really it comes down to two parts. 
the formation of the tabernacle where God's presence would dwell and the priests who would work there. So, let's take a look at the tabernacle. What did God say about the tabernacle? He says, Yahweh spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. Then jump to verse 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you. The pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. This is what God commanded to Moses. He said, I'm going to show you a particular pattern, a way that I want, that God says He wanted the tabernacle to be made. And He told Moses, do things exactly the way that I tell you to do them. Set everything up in a particular way. In other words, God was being a designer. Now, I don't know if you have, uh, if anyone has watched or, or heard of the television station HGTV, Home and Garden Television. Maybe you don't even watch it, but maybe you're just aware of it. Basically, there's a couple different kinds of shows, but one of the kinds of shows that comes on that Tamara doesn't watch it as much anymore, but she used to watch it all the time, and she would have me watch it with her, and, you know, you can't actually get sucked in, because it's fascinating to see how a person comes into a home that seems like everything is just thrown together, and they don't have any order to how it is, and a designer would work on the walls, he would tear down some walls, up some walls, he would redo the kitchens and the bathrooms, and he would put everything together so you walk through, and everything just flowed perfectly. One room flowed perfectly into another, and it was all according to the mind of the designer in order to communicate a certain kind of mindset or feeling to the people that came in. This is how it was, and, and there's so many different ways that you can design a home. You know, people are probably somewhat familiar with a traditional home. After all, it's called traditional. See how everything looks calm and orderly as, as everyone tries in this home tries to, to imitate the, uh, the British and French colonial, the Victorian era home. Everything is just perfectly arranged. Got a lot of symmetry. There's another kind of design style that is called arts and crafts, where basically they say, you know what, I would like to reveal how everything is made. I want to show how the, the chairs are made. I want to show how the wood is made. And so I'm not going to, ha- to hide it. I'm going to display just how each individual piece of furniture is made and kind of say, this is mine. I made this chair. I made this table, that sort of a thing. Let's say you want to reveal even more. Maybe you decide that you want to go for an industrial look. Where you say, I want to just show off everything that I can about this house. I want to show off the bones. I want to show off the pillars. I don't want to cover them up or hide them. I want to show the ductwork. I want to show the wiring. I want to show everything. It's a little more common in uh, cities where people have super small apartments and they say, I'm willing to see the ductwork if I get an extra two feet of space for my ceiling. That sort of a thing. But that's another style. Maybe you don't like that. Maybe you want to go a little bit more modern. 
Maybe you want to have a modern home where you say, let's just cut out as much as we can. Let's have minimal material. Let's have straight lines everywhere we can. No decoration. Neutral colors. Is that everyone's favorite kind? No, maybe not. Maybe you want to introduce a little bit more decorations back in. And you say, I want to go for something bright and airy, and I'm going to go for the shabby chic. And I, maybe you'll get some chairs that are brand new and painted white, but then you'll kind of weather it a little bit so it looks older and more genuine. You're like, yeah, I got that kind of a feeling going on. Where, like, I'm, I'm 22 years old, but I look like I have furniture that's 100 years old, even though it's one year old. Or maybe you just want to go for an eclectic look, where you say, I don't really know what kind I want. I like elements of both, so I'm just going to grab all these elements, and the people who do this style say, I'm not just being random, I'm trying to have a whole bunch of things that come together into a unified whole. Maybe that's your style, I don't know, maybe it's not. But you can see here, there are so many different ways that you can make a house look. Different design choices that you can do. And if you walk into any one of these homes, you have a different feel when you come into it, right? A slightly different feeling of what the person is like, what the family is like, and why did they choose to, to decorate the home the way that they decorated it. Design communicates something. It's a similar way with churches, isn't it? These are all different kinds of churches. Some of them are much more traditional. Some of them are much more uh, modern. You can look around at our own church and the building and, and what a church building looks like communicates something to the people who come in, right? When you walk into a, a place, you get a feeling of how open it is and how friendly it is or what kind of uh, things go on in here, the way that the building looks impacts the, the first-time visitor's sense of what the place is actually like and what kind of experience they're going to have when they come in. It's the same way with the temple, or rather the tabernacle. When God told Moses, I want you create the tabernacle in a particular way and follow the exact pattern that I'm going to be showing you, God was acting as a designer. He was saying, I want everyone who sees the, temp the tabernacle, everyone who enters the tabernacle, everyone who knows what is in the tabernacle, to know that something is being communicated about me, God, and about the people that I want to relate to. The tabernacle was designed in a very specific way and it helps us to understand a little bit more of what's going on and what God is doing. That picture is actually just a picture taken from this really great book that I'm sure Karen's going to ask to borrow at some point because it's the Rose Guide to the Tabernacle. And you can see it's got lots of really great pictures and you can see here this little transparency thing. Isn't it so great? You can remove it and you see all the layers being taken off of the different layers of what the tabernacle looks like. It's really interesting. goes in-depth into this. Can't borrow it until after the next message, though, Karen, in two weeks. But it's a really great resource. Rose Guide to the Tabernacle.
So let's take a look and see what elements did God include in there. First, we can take a look at the part on the outside, the courtyard. You can see here that you have the tent of meeting on the right. We're not, we're going inside that in seconds. But on the outside of the tent of meeting, where most of the furniture is, you have two pieces of furniture. We got this bowl full of water, and we got this big old box with fire coming out of it, and it's all surrounded by these curtains on the outside. So first, you have the fact that there are curtains. Why did God want there to be a courtyard that was sectioned off? Simple. He wanted the place where God was worshipped to be intentional and deliberate. He didn't want it to be a space that people can just wander through and say, oh, oops, it looks like I just happened to be in a place where the worship of God takes place. He said, no, the, everything is sectioned off. There's one entrance. And when you enter in, you know that you are doing it for the purpose of communicating with God, of making a sacrifice to God, of worshiping him. And so there was that that was entered in. And then that big box that we saw, you probably know, it's called the altar, where different kinds of sacrifices were made on this altar. There was a sin and guilt offering, which is probably what most of us would assume was made. When you take an animal and you say, God, I have sinned, I have done something terrible, and I know that I deserve to be judged, but I am going to place my hand on this animal, it will die and be burned in my place so that I don't have to face the judgment for this wrong. But there were other kinds of offerings as well. There were burnt offerings where instead of saying, I'm sorry for what I've done, you can make a burnt offering of, to communicate surrender or dedication to God and say, God, I am giving this sacrifice to communicate to you and everyone who sees that I am dedicating myself to you. And then there's the grain offerings, which are given as a thanks to God. You can say, God, I'm giving you this offering, not because I've done something wrong, not to make a promise or surrender to you, but to say thank you. God, thank you for that job. Thank you for that provision. Thank you for that way that, uh, that we had just enough money for, uh, for this expense that came up, this sudden unexpected expense. I want to thank you, God, and I present you this grain offering. And then there's the fellowship offerings that come, a meal offering, where you give God a portion of a meal that you're about to have in a festival or a feast to say, God, I'm just going to celebrate. This is the kind of offering that would oftentimes take place at a number of, such as their festival of harvest or first fruits or the festival of ingathering, where they say, God, we're just going to celebrate. And we are celebrating because of you. So God, we give you this offering. So that's the altar. This is something anyone, any Israelite had access to in order to worship God. And then we start getting a little more exclusive. There's this bronze basin. What is the purpose for it? God tells Moses, Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and feet from this basin whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minister by burning an offering to Yahweh. They must wash with water so that they will not die. This is not something that is for everyone. This is for the priests. 
Because the priests, yes, they are able to do different things to minister by actually making a sacrifice on the altar or going into the tent of meeting itself to work on the the pieces of furniture that are in there. But God says, when you do this, yes, you have access because you're priests, but you must also be clean. You must have clean hands and clean feet. So that when you are coming to minister, to, to serve, you are honoring me. You're doing it in a right state of mind and with cleanness with those parts of your body that are serving. So that's the courtyard. Now let's go into the tent of meeting and see what pieces of furniture are there. You have three different things. You got a a lampstand, you got this little box that some guy is pouring something onto, and you got a table. What are these? And what are they for? First, we take a look at the table, which is the place where the bread of presence, God says, is to be placed on that table before me at all times. Why do we have a table with bread? We at Rock Bible Chapel should know better than almost anyone else that you, that a fellowship is not complete unless you're eating food together. Right? Why do you think that all of our Bible studies and all of our meetings are so well fed? Because you fellowship together when you have food. I remember when we had Daryl Ryla's um, uh memorial service. There were some people that were meeting at the cemetery who I had kind of met before, but I I didn't really know that well, and I spoke to them at the ceremony, just kind of standing around. It was an awkward conversation. It was like, I just don't know what to say. But they came to our church. They sat at a table and they just ate food, and stories just start coming. Laughter starts coming. When there is a table with food, there is fellowship and enjoyment of each other's presence. And that is what God is saying he wanted. A piece of bread for each of the twelve tribes to show that God wanted to have fellowship with his people. And then there's the lampstand. Is it here? There we go. Where God says, you are to make a lampstand. Not just with one lamp, but with seven different lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it. Because after all, how can you enjoy fellowship around the table if you can't see? Like my grandfather, my mother's father used to do. Whenever he would be in a uh, room sitting down at a table and there wasn't enough light to see, he wouldn't say, hey, someone turn up the lights. Instead, he would take a fork full of food and he would just pick it up and he would... Oh, Ah, he just miss his mouth on purpose until someone says, why are you doing that? He's like, well, it's kind of hard to see so I can do that. You need light to be able to see. And God's lampstand, when God said make a lampstand, it was to show that he wanted there to be illumination. He wanted there to be guidance. And that was how he wanted to relate to the people, to be their light. And then there's the altar of incense where God says there is to be an incense offering before Yahweh throughout your generations. You must not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt or grain offering. You are not to pour a drink offering on it. This is an altar 
But don't mistake it for the other altar on the outside of the tent of meeting. That is a place where you may make burnt offerings and uh, sin offerings, grain offerings and, and meal offerings. You can do all those things. But the altar of incense is supposed to relate, uh, communicate something that is different than all of those. Something that is special. The altar of incense is a place that is meant to represent the prayers of the people being lifted up to God. Communication. God didn't just want food to be shared. He didn't just want to provide light for us. He also wanted the people to continually be presenting on the altar of incense that which represents the prayers of the people to God. We are to be in constant communication with Him as well. And that is all that is within the holy place in the tent of meeting. But there is something else, an incredibly important thing, which we use what has become almost a religious term now, uh, ark, the ark. What is an ark? To actually translate the word, it's a box. God says, you are to create a box and place within it the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark, the box. And this is so important. This is, it's so cool that God does this because we've had some conversations in Bible studies about how the Bible that we have, the Bible that we have in English, that's not the original writings of God. They're translations of manuscripts. And those manuscripts that we have that are hundreds or even thousands of years old, those aren't the originals. Those are copies of copies of copies. And even when you get back to the original writings, the the writings that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Moses wrote themselves, those writings were not written by the hand of God. They were written by human men. Now, these men were inspired by God. God ensured that they spoke and communicated exactly what He wants. And we know that those copies are accurate because we have so many and they are so close to each other. The differences are all so small and minor that we know with confidence that what the Bible teaches now is what we saw then. But these stones that God says, I'm going to give you these stones and I want you to put them in the box, in the ark, those were actually the words written by the very hand of God. Scripture actually written by God. So cool. And on top of that, on top of the ark, the box, there's something called a mercy seat made of pure gold and set on top. And God says, it is there that I will meet with you above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. God says, Moses, I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. What a cool thing to have God say, I will actually speak with you from this place. But you notice how you didn't see the ark and the mercy seat in the picture? That is because between that, 
Within the tents, it was not made of one room, but two. There was a veil separating. As we read in Exodus 26, verse 33, God tells Moses to hang the curtain and give some details about clasps and wood supports and such. But he says, hang the curtain and bring the Ark of the Testimony there behind the curtain so the curtain will make a separation for you between the holy place and the most holy place. This is the tabernacle that God made with intentional design for each and every single part of it. Every piece of furniture. There are only... One, two, three, four, five, six. Some people say the ark and the mercy seat are two separate pieces. It's a box with a lid. So it's one. There's only six pieces of furniture in the whole thing. In this whole tabernacle where God is to be worshipped. And it says something to us. It was made to communicate something. Because you start with the courtyard where you got the altar with the sacrifices and the basin. This is a place where anyone can walk into. Any Israelite can come here to worship God any day and every day. And within that, though, there is the tent of meeting, the first room called the holy place, where you have the table, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. And at the same time that we see, God says, here is my representation of my light, which is to guide the people, my table, which has the food, which represents the fellowship with the people, and the altar of incense, which represents the prayers of the people, this place that's supposed to represent the relationship between God and men. No Israelites were allowed to enter except for the priests. Only the priests could go in there. Isn't that interesting? It's a place that communicates fellowship and distance at the same time. And then that place, the, the box, the ark, with the tablets that define the relationship between God and His people, and the mercy seat where God's actual presence is, God says, no one goes in there. You don't even look in there. You don't go behind the curtain unless you are the high priest. And you can't go in there if you're the high priest any day, but only once a year for a special ceremony called the Altar of Atonement in which you essentially say, God, I'm sorry, we're all terrible. We've been terrible again this year. I'm sorry for the way that we have broken your covenant again. That's the only reason they go in there. The tabernacle is designed with a purpose. And we are to catch this message of how God related to the people of Israel through this covenant with Moses. Because as you move from the courtyard to the holy place, to the most holy place, you have what seems to be a contradiction. That you have, the closer you draw to the most holy place, the holy of holies, you have an increase in a level of relationship. But at the same time, there are increasing restrictions and barriers that make it harder and harder to go from one place to the next. This is the difficulty with a tabernacle. This place where there is increased barrier and it is hard to get close to God. But there is such good news in the person of Jesus Christ. 
I don't know if you've considered this, but Jesus Christ Himself is the fulfillment of every part of that tabernacle. The altar is the place where a lamb is to be sacrificed in order to pay for the sin of the people. Where burnt offerings are sacrificed to, for, for surrender and dedication. Where the grain offerings are made for thanks. And the meal offerings are made in, in celebration and in feasts. And Jesus Christ was the one who sacrificed Himself as the Lamb of God. Not just to, to cover over our guilt for a little while, but the one that actually took away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the altar. He was the fulfillment of the basin. The basin is a place where the priests would wash their hands and their feet in order to be able to serve. They were allowed to serve, but not until they washed their hands and feet. And what did Jesus do when He was with His disciples? He washed the feet of the disciples who He was about to send out to minister to the world, to carry on His work. He first washed their feet. He is the one that prepared them for ministry. He is the fulfillment of the table because He is the bread of life. The one who said... Don't look for food that's going to make not satisfy you forever. You eat breakfast, you'll be hungry again by lunch or dinner. He said, no, take my body. Eat my body. Drink my blood. I am the bread of life. And you will have fellowship with God and life forever because of that. He is the fulfillment of the lampstand, the light of the world that gives guidance and light. He is a purifying light for us all. He is the fulfillment of the altar of incense. We read in Hebrews that He is the high priest who continually prays for you. For each and every one of you in your specific situations, He knows what it's like to be on this earth. He knows what it's like to have difficulty. He knows what you're going through and He continually prays to the Father for you. Right now. He is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Testimony. The commands that no Israelite was ever able to follow themselves, Jesus fulfills every commandment perfectly without ever breaking it once and offers us His righteousness. Not because we earned it, but because He did. He is the fulfiller of the mercy seat. Romans chapter 3, everyone knows 3.23 which says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? It continues on where Jesus says, where Paul says that God the Father displayed Christ as, literally speaking, a mercy seat. Jesus Christ is displayed as the place where mercy is found. And the mercy seat is the place where we can go to find mercy. We have no restrictions because though there was a veil between the two rooms that separated it so that no one can go into the place where people met with God, Jesus is the one that literally, not figuratively, literally tore the veil from top to bottom so that we who go to God 
we don't find in Jesus just a place where we can say we have fellowship, offer our prayers, and find guidance. We get a direct relationship with God that Israel never had access to before. Jesus Christ is the answer to the question posed by the tabernacle. How can I have a relationship with God when I feel like because of my sin, there are so many barriers and restrictions. That is what the tabernacle is meant to remind us for. Tabernacle, the temple, gives us the questions, and Jesus Christ gives us the answer. And now, you are his workmanship. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship. Not individually, not you and you and you and you and you. God says... What he's talking, what Paul says in chapter 2 is he's talking about joining all together. How he saved us all together with Christ. And he says, now we, all of us, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And in 310, well, it's not 210, it's chapter 3, sorry. But he says, then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens and saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, we, us, the people, being put together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You, not just individually, as a whole, make up the temple of the Lord God now. We opened up today taking a look at the design of buildings. And it's easy for us to think about the design of buildings. Yeah, that's an important thing, right? When people walk into a building, how do they feel? You know, you get an idea of it. But you know what? You can have the best building in the world. But Jesus says, that's not my temple. That is not the place where I am at. I am found, Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name. Wherever the church, the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of God gathers, there I am found. What do you want to display to the world? Hard work, productivity, faith, worship. Do you want to just be a, a people that when people come to you, you're, you gather together, they have a sense of peace or relaxation or joy or fun, hospitality, service. Do you want to be a creative people that expresses beauty? All of the above. We are the temple and you are the pieces of furniture. What do we do to express God in our life. I don't just want I want you guys to look at this list and think to yourself not just a matter of what I want to do overall. You know, any of these are really great concepts. I would like to be a peaceful person. But why don't we get practical? If I look in your home, your actual house, do I see a place of peace? Do I see a place of joy? If I look in your schedule, 
do I see room for creativity or productivity or hospitality? How about if I took a look in your checkbook? I'd be able to see really quickly where your priorities live if you show me your checkbook and where you spend your money, right? Or what do you do in relaxation and hobbies? When you don't have any demands on your time, what do you choose to do with it? This is not meant to say that you need to get your life in order to make yourself a better Christian. But Jesus Christ lived an intentional life that displayed the character of God. And we are being built up together into a temple as well. As we come to the table, we're taking the bread and the cup. And we are remembering the death of Jesus Christ. That he died for us. Not just so that we could be people who say, now I'm right with God. He says, this is my body. When you take it in yourself, guess what? You become a part of the body of Christ through faith. Not because of the ceremony of communion, but the faith, the trust in Jesus. He says, this is my body. And you remember that you become a part of the body of Christ. Which means that we represent Christ to the world. As we come to God through this time in communion, as we pray and as we take the bread and the cup, let's ask God how we can display Christ not in five or six areas of our life. Pick one. How is God moving you to display Christ in your life today?